Hi, I'm June Sarpong and welcome to Championing Women's Voices, the podcast from NatWest sharing stories of incredible women and their work. In this series, I'm speaking to guests from all walks of life, business, sport, entertainment and activism to discuss strategies for success, whatever that means, and to learn how we can inspire and support one another. Today, it's time to talk as we discuss our mental health. One in four of us will experience a mental health problem in any given year. And it's estimated by the NHS that one in six people in the past week has experienced a common mental health problem. It's something that will affect every single one of us in some way, whether it's personally or through someone we know. So what can we do to become better equipped to talk about our own and others' mental health? Well, I've got two guests with me today to help us guide us through this issue. I'm fortunate enough to be joined by the wonderful Pornabelle, one of my favourites, uh, a journalist who has written extensively about her mental health and is one of Balance magazine's top 100 wellness personalities. Uh, she's dedicated to getting more people to talk openly and honestly about depression and she is also a champion weightlifter. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> a renaissance woman if ever there was one. Also joining us is Joe Lockram, the director of Time to Change, a social movement that looks at how you reduce stigmas around mental health and has partnered with charities such as Mind and Rethink Mental Illness. How lucky am I to have you both here? Thank you very much. Couldn't pick two better people to talk about this subject. Feeling honoured to be here. Oh. That was such a lovely intro. Oh, Thank thanks. Oh, <laughs> we try. So I think I'll start with a general question for both of you. So it seems that mental health is more prominent in terms of how we talk about it at the moment. But do you think that we talk about it enough? Considering before we weren't talking about it at all. I'll start with you first, Joe. Yeah, I mean, we've made some great inroads in getting people talking. I mean, Time to Change began as a, a social movement back in 2007. And, and at the time, people were talking about it, but not in quite the same way as they're able to do now. And I think there's something around talking about the topic in general, which is really, really helpful in order for those who want to talk about their own experience to feel they can do that without fear of being treated negatively or, mm. you know, being isolated or all of that stuff that can sometimes mean that people keep things hidden. And I think the ability to be able to kind of open up and talk about things is really, really important. I agree. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, four or five years ago, the conversation was very much, the main goal was actually having the conversation. Okay. And being able to have that conversation regularly. Now, I feel like we have moved a lot beyond that in terms of it's not just about having the conversation. It's about how you maybe address certain needs of different types of communities. You know, for example, one thing that I never thought would happen would be my parents and their friends and yeah. of their generation yeah. having conversations with me about mental health. I mean, they might still not get it exactly right. But to me, that is a groundbreaking thing. Huge, because it's not yeah. something they would have ever considered. They just got on with life, didn't know, they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If somebody was depressed, you didn't talk about no, it. Yeah. But, but isn't that really great? Because I wonder how much of that is also around that kind of modelling behaviour. So even though, I mean, and, and I'm, I totally identify with that as well, when you kind of talk to your, your own parents and they don't quite get it, but they know it's important. Mm. So they're willing to kind Absolutely. of like open up a little bit more about it. <laughs> and I think that's really important. But it's something about that kind of modelling behaviour 
behaviour, which is really, really interesting. And, and what I think as a social movement, that's exactly what happens. You see other people, particularly in workplaces, you know, you see senior managers talking about it. And then that means that you think, mm, OK, well, maybe that's OK for me to also talk about that now as well. And I think that's so lovely. So yeah. tell us what the goals are for Time to Change, particularly around the conversation what kind of conversations should we be having well i mean the overall goals really of time to change are, are looking to create a world where everybody feels should they choose to able to talk about their own mental health or the topic of mental health without fear of judgment from others mm. and we're really looking to target people who aren't necessarily close to the topic of mental health so it could be the people who've never even thought about it it's not been on their radar before and we're really trying to target them to get them to think differently about mental health and to think differently about those of us with experience of mental health problems. So that's the kind of overall aim. And the conversations, it really depends on who and in what situation. So for people who are quite close to the subject, so maybe me and Paul are having a conversation about it, it would be and feel very, very different. Mm. If I'm having a conversation with somebody who's Oftentimes this happens to me. I might be on a train, get chatting to people. They say, what, what do you do? do? Yeah. Start then that conversation. That's a whole different thing because that's more about kind of like just getting it on the radar, mm. planting a seed. People go off. Then suddenly they hear something else about mental health. And they go, oh, I remember that conversation I had. And so it builds into this snowball. So I, I think what conversations we have depend on who we are, where we're on a journey of understanding and basically what's the outcome that we want to have from it. So they're always different. I understand. Why do you think there is such a stigma? Oh, I mean, it's just... Why has mental health mm. always been separated from how physical health is perceived? You mm. know, they are both some sort of ailment... Mm -hmm of the body you know the mind is still a part of your body isn't it yeah. so what is that I don't I've never understood I think it's just because people have less understanding so if you have something else that you can identify with you or you, see or see mm -hmm. yeah it's, it, there's a physical manifestation you kind of think okay I know what that is I recognize it I know this treatment and I know what I would need to do to go and get help and support I think with mental health for such a long time, it became so hidden, it became perceived as a kind of weakness or something that you definitely didn't want to be talking about, that people then kind of internalise what they hear externally. So mm. if, if you're hearing lots of banter about, you know, mad psycho people or, or yeah. people with, you know, mad axe murderer, you start to think, gosh, I don't want to reveal the fact that I might be experiencing what they're talking about. Negative does, thoughts, does, yeah. Does that, does yeah, that yeah. make me part of that? And also I think there's the general thinking that you can control your mental health in the way that perhaps you can't control physical illness. So, yeah. you know, people think, well, you know, I'm feeling sad. I just kind of forget about it. Yeah. So why can't you? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that there's that understanding. So some of it's around education as well. Mm. Although we're, as time to shame, not necessarily an education piece, but you have to kind of start there to get people to understand that it's happening. There is a negative connotations if you treat somebody negatively. Getting people to understand that they've got a part to play in that, either perpetuating it or being the solution to it. Uh -huh. And then you create this kind of journey for people which takes them up to kind of championing the cause and really getting out there and saying, this is not good enough in this day and age. I really, really want to be talking about this more. Brilliant. Now, Porna, you started talking about the issue of mental health when you experienced tragedy in your own life. Uh, would you share some of that with us? And do you think that being so vocal was part of your healing process? 
Yeah, so I started talking about this about four and a half years ago. Mm. And for me, the reasons are very personal in that four and a half years ago, my husband Rob took his own life mm. and he had been struggling with depression for you know a very, very long time we worked out and also had a dual diagnosis of addiction. And when I was going through all of that stuff with Rob, I didn't really know very much about any of those things. I definitely didn't know for example, what chronic depression looked like, you know, what that actually was, how that might affect his behaviour and so on. And there was a massive sense that he had, which, you know, we talk about this conversation around men mental health and, mm. you know, self-stigma and all of that. And I think that it's very complicated in that not only did I not know very much about it, but Rob, my late husband, also had a massive stigma against himself and felt very ashamed of the mm. fact that he had depression. And that inhibited his ability to get help until, you know, sort of the last couple of years of his life, like his improper psychiatric mm. treatment. And so on. And I think that after he passed away, I mean, it wasn't when he was going through all of this stuff, it wasn't something we really talked to our friends and family about. Like some family members wow. knew that he had depression, but it was very much something that we kind of dealt with at home mm. because it's very easy to forget now that that it was a very different landscape, you know, back even then. five years ago. Or exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. After he passed away, I think it was just the realization that I just couldn't really do this anymore. I didn't want to be silent about it. I felt that being silent about it and had contributed to this massive taboo around mental health. There is a huge taboo around suicide. And I had reached a point which, you know, for anyone that's kind of experienced grief, is that it just strips away a lot of the other things that might be holding you back from doing that. So at that point, like, I didn't really care about the consequences of speaking out because mm. not speaking out Was for me held, yeah, yeah, and held greater and had far greater consequences, mm. you know. So when I started speaking out about it, I mean, Joe, kind of off the back of what you were saying about, you know, people feeling comfortable about this and how we talk about stigma and so on, is that I just found that all of this stuff that I'd held in my head, that Rob had held in his head about how people would react, what other people might think of us and so on, was actually there are some people that are going to not necessarily react in the best possible way. And those are not the people that you keep around you or yeah. you engage with. Mm -hmm. But the converse of that is that there is this huge, huge community out there who will understand. And want to help. And want to help. And once you can identify it and once you can kind of push through that wall, mm. which is not a wall that I think, you know, yeah, we can say it's in our own heads. And yeah, we can say that, you know, this is something that we feel we can't talk about. But we're not imagining this yes. stuff. The reason mm. we feel we can't talk about it's it is because, because a lot of people are uncomfortable yeah. with it. Yeah. And those societal constructs are huge and they're very real. I mean, when we talk about things like education, I know several doctors who are friends and family who are general practitioners who still hold the belief that if they are going through mental distress or mental struggle, they should be able to think their way out of it. Mm. And that to me, they know it. They know all the stuff, right? <laughs> so that to me doesn't indicate that you're dealing with someone who's ignorant or doesn't know. But that to me indicates that this huge, huge wall is still there. Yeah. And that's a very real thing. And that's made up of very real emotions. And, and because feelings. we sort of place such high value on logic and pragmatism and actually there's nothing logical about what happens to you when you do go to a place that you can't control mentally. Yeah. And I think that that's the reason why so many people are completely uncomfortable with it because we don't want to be out of control. Mm, exactly. And also people are also worried. So sometimes 
I think people are really worried that you will open up to them. <laughs> you know, oh. they, they, they do that thing where they, because they don't want to be embarrassed by not knowing what to do. And yes. I think one of the things that we've talked about so many times and for so many years is, one, you don't have to be an expert to, you know, have a conversation or to be open to the topic of mental health. And, you know, that really your role is to sit and listen. And I think sometimes we underestimate and we have some criticism sometimes about talking about talking. Mm. Well, Ooh, how does I like that, that. talking about talking. How does yeah. that make a difference? Well, mm -hmm. actually, for some people, that might be the very first time that they've ever opened up. And your reaction to that is so so key and that's not about whether or not they'll feel safe enough to doing do it again, again. Yeah. And, and and you don't have to have all the answers and I think what we do is we start to do that thing where we kind of panic stop listening start thinking overthinking okay this person's telling me something what have I got to do da, 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 da. and then actually we stop just doing that relaxing thing nine times out of ten if you open up you're not really looking for a solution mm. you just need to be heard yeah mm. and that's such a powerful thing that we can give to others is being able to listen when people are ready to talk yes and I think that's such an important point Joe, because you don't have to have the answers you know it's fine not to know what to do but mm -hmm. just being there to hold that space for mm -hmm. somebody is so valuable mm -hmm. so Porna can we talk more about what the impact is for people whose loved ones are dealing with mental health issues and what that kind of stress is like too. I think that, I mean, as with everything... And presumably that has an impact on your own mental health. Yeah, I mean, hugely. I think that when you are dealing with a loved one who is struggling mentally or, I mean, it's worth saying that obviously there are huge distinctions between someone that actually is mentally ill. Yes. Um, and I think that when you're dealing with a loved one who has a mental illness... The impact is huge. It reaches into every aspect of your life, especially if that person is your partner or similarly if you're a parent and you just don't know what to do. Like, let's say the person that you're dealing with is an adult, for example. So in any of those situations, it can be a really tough line to know how much to help. You know, you don't really want to mollycoddle or nanny the person, especially if they're an adult. And figuring out those boundaries and those lines is really, really tricky. And I found that the only way that really we could work things out were having conversations. For example, it could be something as literal as sorting out domestic chores or just gently finding out how they're getting on with things. So I didn't know, for example, that if you have really severe depression, you might find something like opening your mail really, really hard. I can imagine. Opening your I think people without yeah. depression find exactly. opening their mail really hard. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's just... And those things, someone might go, well, does that really matter? And it's like, well, yeah, if you have credit card bills, if you've got things that need to be sorted, be sorted out, that stuff can build up really, really quickly. And I think that when you're dealing with all of that, so you're dealing with the life admin of another human being, mm. you know, you're trying to kind of keep your household going. And I think absolutely, as you've said, that has a huge impact on you because not only are you practically and physically doing extra stuff, you're frustrated and you're resentful about the whole thing. And also there is a frustration at seeing your loved one go through something which is horrendous at times, but you can't do anything to help them really or yeah. to, to fix it. Yeah. You, you can't. Know, which is a terrible phrase, mm. I know, but that's what I used to think. And I think that when all of that is going on and you've got no outlet for how you emotionally feel and you're physically knackered from just working and doing everything at home, you totally lose sight of who you are, the kind of hobbies that you like doing, socialising with friends, you feel that you need to maybe be with your loved one all the time. 
And I would just say that the biggest learning that I've had around that is you are one person. There is a finite amount of things that you can do. Yeah. I wish that we had gotten help earlier and not tried to do everything ourselves and to understand that getting help is not a shameful thing. And actually, mm. when you're talking about mental health, you are talking about something that does need, at times, medical attention, which yep. you as a lay person just cannot do. Yeah. And also boundaries. Boundaries are really important to have. Like if you still continue to go out and do the things that you like doing, it doesn't mean that you are not taking your loved one's illness seriously. Or, or letting you're... the person down. Exactly. Yeah. And half the time I'm willing to bet that the other person probably feels absolutely terrible that you're not going out and you're mm. not doing all those things and kind of wants you to still have a bit of yeah. your life. Yeah. You know, if they re like... There's a lot of love in these situations. And, and I there's think a lot of love in yeah. self-care. Self-care mm -hmm. isn't yeah. just about loving yourself, but it's also about loving the people around you exactly. so you can still be your best self. So it's key. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about solutions? Um, one of the things that we're looking at with this series um, is about success stories as well and, and what the solutions are to some of the problems that we are looking at. So in terms of self-care, mm -hmm. what do you think are the key things that people should be doing? And then in terms of getting help and support, what is out there and what is working? So I'm speaking from the point of view of someone as mm. a lived-in experience mm. and someone who works alongside and has most contact with other people who have similar experiences. What I would say is working or what seems to work is not just saying to people that you need to open up and you need to talk about things. Like the current conversation that we're having at the moment is that is all well and good. Mm. But when you are dealing with people who haven't been given a vocabulary for how to talk about their mental health, mm. how are we making that happen? And the way that I am seeing some of that stuff happen is in community-based groups. So, okay. for example, you may have organizations that might not be directly specifically related to mental health, let's say fitness or well-being initiatives where you've got people that come together for sport or something like that and then through that you can connect your mental well-being to it mm. and by socializing with people and you know mental health mates for example is a really good example of how to oh, combine wow. those two things mm -hmm. where you can go out for walks you can be in the outdoors you might be struggling with your mental health you might have someone who does but it's the actual act of just getting people together to make those connections and share information mm. for me i've realized that social media has it has a bad rep for being a driver in other areas of, you know, mental ill health. Mm. But for me, social media is actually an integral part of communities, online communities, right. people that can't leave the house, that might have anxiety around socialising and how we share our stories, how you link to other services and so on. I mean, the, there is obviously a huge piece about funding and, and how you connect those dots between the you need to open up and you need to talk and say if you need help and then actually providing a service mm. that helps you with that. But I put out on Twitter, does anyone know, like if you have any good mental health or grassroots organizations you'd wow. recommend and it was incredible like what there did are, they come back with so there are loads i mean the first i'm an ambassador for calm so their helpline and what they do is also they're a men's suicide prevention charity but there's wishlist for wards which is an amazing initiative that's being run which basically was run by a lady who noticed that when she was staying in mental health wards some people weren't lucky enough to have you know nice things that mm. had been brought to them by their loved ones so okay. this is a this is basically an initiative which means that you can buy things for other people that are on wards. Lovely. There's number five young people which offers free counseling.
counselling for young people 11 to 25, OCD UK, Maytree, which is a suicide sanctuary for people that are feeling suicidal, and the last one, which is Adaction, who deal with drugs and alcohol and mental health. Okay. And the service that they provide is incredible and they are so judgment-free about things. Brilliant. And the thing is, it's about knowing that those services are actually out there and that yeah. they are easily mm-hmm. accessible too. Mm. Joe, do you want to add to that? And I think from our point of view, we're, we're looking less at kind of well-being as such and more about you know challenging stigma and discrimination. And I think certainly what we found is we do a lot of work in secondary schools. Mm. We, we've got a, a link into about just over half of all secondary schools in England. And I think that's really, really important in order to think about mm. this as a change in a generation because we will will be running as time to change for 15 years or by the time we get to 2021. Mm. And we've seen all these massive changes in attitude and behaviour. And I wouldn't say that we're at a tipping point where we've reached everybody that we need to reach. But by working with young people, you start to get them going through the education system they're much more about rights and protest and and wanting to make a change. So those young people will be the next people that come into an employment situation. So they're the ones that are going to be saying, I want to decide to work for a ethically sound organisation. I want them to be good on all of the things that are important Mm. to me, one of which is going to be mental health. So it really helps for employers to kind of think about, well, okay, what is it that we need to do to be a mentally healthy workplace? How can we make sure we get as much out of our employees as possible? So there's the work that Time to Change also does within the employer sector. And then I think coming back to something you mentioned about community bases, I think that what we do is kind of national stuff. And then what we try to do is encourage through our sort of community leadership work to really encourage localities Mm. to think about what is it that's important in your community and how can we have people sharing their stories Mm. who resonate with the people to whom they're talking because we Mm. know that's much more powerful than anything else. So I think there's a whole raft of things that we can do and each of those things alone probably wouldn't make as much difference as we've seen. Mm. Club them all together and I think we've got something quite powerful. Brilliant. So talking about work, you're a freelancer. um, And so, you know, the things that Joe has described perhaps aren't available to you because you work alone. Mm -hmm. So how do you practice mental wellness when you spend so much time alone (laughs) and in solitude? Well, previously to that, I worked in corporations. So there's obviously a very different conversation around (laughs) mental well-being when you work in a corporation. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally really like being alone and I don't mean that yeah in a misanthropic way but it's more just that it's a place that I'm very comfortable in and I don't think that I would have felt as comfortable in it had I not done a lot of work around my mental health because I'm not the kind of person that's uncomfortable being alone or you weren't traveling alone for almost a year it was amazing I was watching I saw (laughs) I was following you on social media yeah so I would say that but having said that there is I've worked out that two days is probably the longest I can go without seeing Any someone. Any outside contact. Yeah, then I get quite, um, my, like my voice gets slightly high-pitched and talk really fast. So what I do is I make sure that sort of two days a week I've got meetings in London. If I don't have meetings, which is a rare thing, I will make sure that I reach out to other friends. freelancers oh, or freelancers. friends okay. who work remotely and will go and co-work together. Um, are there communities like that for freelancers? I mean, there are a lot of communities that are like that, but personally, I don't belong to them. I tend to have, 
other people because I, I have quite a specific way of working. And so I tend to identify people that work in a very similar way to me. And then we, yeah, we spend a day together. But also for sure, making sure that I'm moving my body because I think that if you're working from home, it's very, very tempting for me to just not move for about 12 hours. So at 12 o'clock <laughs> so or one o'clock, I have true. to set an alarm and I'm yeah. like, yep, no, even if it's even if it's cold and miserable, you have yeah. to get out there. That's totally. Like walking a dog. Yeah. Yeah. I just need it. I need a virtual dog. That's yeah. what I need. Because <laughs> I am desperate for a proper dog. But, you know. <laughs> no, but I don't think that, that. But I think that's really interesting, isn't it? And that, and that whole thing around, well, okay, how can you look after your mental health? And I think for that, it's such an individual thing, isn't it? And I'm really struck by that because I, I love my own company. Mm. I'm probably a little bit boring like that. But, mm. but, but actually, I would say that I'm definitely on the introvert mm. side of things. And again, that's not about being shy and retiring. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I'm definitely not those things. But it is about where do you get your energy from? And actually, I really sometimes just going out on a walk on my own, being outside, being in nature, having some fresh air. Mm-hmm. That's so lovely. And it's so I know it's good for my mental health. So when I come back in, I'm much more clued up to be able to then talk to people. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then you can do the work that you need to do. Exactly. Yeah. So if we're talking about spotting mental health issues in ourselves and in others... The science can sometimes be quite different between men and women. And actually, if we look at the statistics, perhaps men are even more vulnerable because they don't talk as openly as we do. Can you talk to that a bit as well? Because you've been a real advocate in terms of getting men to open up about depression and mental illness. I think for me, it's when you are stuck in the thick of it, it's really hard to have a perspective or to, you know, in retrospect, you look back and you just think, oh, my gosh, why didn't I pick up on those things? But for me, it boils down to one thing, really, which so if you're looking specifically at men and yes, we're dealing in stereotypes, but actually we're also dealing in quite common behaviours. Right. And if we look at the sort of the rates for suicide amongst men, when compared to women, those are quantifiable differences. Huge of, differences, yeah. yeah. So for me, I think that I will always get... Men. Yeah, yeah, the response of, you know, I'm fine, yeah, no, nothing's wrong, or someone making a joke to brush it off, right, or to kind of make your concerns seem trivial or unfounded. And what I've just found is sometimes, you know, maybe nothing's wrong, but more often than not, if someone is consistently behaving in a way or reacting in a way that is out of character you know it in your gut it doesn't really seem to fit the scenario it's like kind of putting a jigsaw puzzle together but the pieces aren't really they don't fit yeah that for me is a massive warning sign that something is wrong Wrong. doesn't mean you have to kind of prize it out of them you know like a pearl out of an oyster there are ways and means in which to do this in a way that the other person will feel comfortable opening up. But I would say that more often than not, it is when someone, even if someone is insisting that they're fine, asking that question a few times to just see if the answer is a bit different. Mm -hmm. And I think also if you want to create a, a situation in which someone feels that they can open up, what I have personally found seems to work with men the best is to put them in a scenario where they feel like they are not going to be judged and are not going to be shamed Mm. for what they are going to say. So to what Joe was saying earlier, you don't even have to worry about what you're going to say. You just kind of listen. So we're coming towards the end of uh, our discussion. So Joe, what I want to find out from you is how do we change people's attitudes towards this issue? I would say we change it 
conversation by conversation, mm-hmm. one at a time. And, um, you know, we've got this massive sort of army of people who've got personal experience who are willing to talk about it. And that is, again, one of the most powerful things, I think, that we've got on our side in terms of time to change. And that lived experience comes from the top, from me, mm. straight through to our champions. And I'd say 98% of our employees have all got a declared mental health problem. And I think that we have to kind of take a joined up multifaceted, multi-level approach, which is, again, the stuff that we've been doing at Time to Change, that mass reach plus the individual stuff that's going on. But most importantly, I think we just have to be willing to listen, willing to open up and just having that kind of open-mindedness and think really clearly about what is this person actually saying to me? And if I'm at all uncertain, to most definitely be asking twice because we know that's one of the most powerful things that people can have is the ability to say. say. Yeah, Yeah. is the absolute ability to say, okay, I've asked you the first time, it's a bit like a hello. I'm asking you the second time, I'm showing you that I'm really, really actually interested in what you've got to say, which is, yeah, really good thing to do. And in terms of organisational structure changes, what can we do? And that's for both of you. In terms of organisational changes, a big focus for me is mental health in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So I think that what I have seen, and I've seen some really positive changes taking place, but a big thing that companies seem to be struggling with is how do you find that perfect meeting point between the culture of a company? So like, let's say you're a company that, you know, a finance company, or you've got things that are hard fixed points in terms of your clients and so on. And how do you... And often time sensitive as well. Absolutely. And then, but how do you also then at the same time look after your employees' mental well-being? In terms of one big thing that I just think should be done anyway, is just that in the same way, whenever someone new joins a company, Company, especially a manager who, you know, will be the first point of call for someone who might be struggling with their mental health at work, is to just train managers to be able to, in the same way that they would learn how to use a printer, in the same way that they would be taught, you know, how to report like certain behaviours or whatever in the office, I just think that signposting that for people in terms of what they can do in a very clear way and to let their employees know that they're supported, that is what I want to see happen more consistently. Mm. But, you know, optimistically, I have seen some companies try and change the way they're working around that. So we're beginning to see progress. Beginning to see it. Well, yeah, because I think about two or three years ago or even two years ago, it was very much like, oh, it's... World Mental Health Day, let's hire, like get some speakers in. And then that was kind of like a, t- a box that would be ticked. And now, you know, I'm just um, finding that actually it is a lot more... And it's ongoing. Yeah, yeah, it's ongoing. It's not necessarily something that just happens one day a year. There are initiatives being led by people who actually have very personal experiences with it mm. and, and are, is being done so in a very good and powerful way. And I think that's totally right. I mean, we've been having our employment pledge for about five or six years now. And so far, we've got over 1,200 workplaces who have signed the pledge. And again, not a PR exercise by any means. There's a a whole process that they have to go through. They have Mm. to look at culture. How do they fit mental health into their existing programme? How do they get leadership to buy into it, to talk about it? What can they do in terms of policies Mm. and procedures? Because, again, that's another really big thing. You know, how can they get people with experience to lead the change within the organisation? And having to put together a kind of 18-month plan over seven key areas that we know make a difference to people's lives. And 
And, you know, we look at how that's landed and colleagues are definitely more willing to be open. They're more willing to talk to line managers. So the line manager training is so important. But also then you, and coming back to my earlier point of, you then walk into an organisation and you know this is a safe place Mm. for me to have this conversation. Mm. And frankly, if you don't have that, if you don't have that feeling of safety, you're going to bottle up what's going on for you and let's face it we spend an average of 1,800 hours a year in work did you know that I didn't even know that until this morning that is <laughs> probably a long more time <laughs> and yeah probably more for, mo- for that's on average that's an average so you know we that's a long time not to be bringing Abby. your whole self yeah. to work it is <laughs> and that's really important we need to be able to bring our whole selves to work to be productive to make sure that we're not turning up and you know not not and going through the motions going through the motions exactly so we've spoken a lot about men women helping men with their mental health but actually how can we help each other my friendships and my relationships with whether that's you know work or whatever with other women is that they are such a huge source of safety and comfort and empowerment now sometimes the love that and support that you get from other women is amazing, but they don't always tell you the things that you need to hear or okay. the tough stuff, <laughs> yeah. right? Because you, you're kind of like the blanket of comfort and safety against yeah. the rest of the world that can be quite you know, hard. Yeah. Mm. Um, what I have learned is actually that listening, being there for each other, not not dismissing, not dismissing what someone else is bringing to you is really important. But also sometimes, I mean, I can only speak to this as to my own mental health, is that identifying other women, I've got two who I can call if I'm struggling with my mental health or, if you know, I kind of struggle on and off with anxiety. And they're amazing because they don't tell me how to fix it. They just literally listen and I feel better by the end of it. But also sometimes when I am on a trajectory where I might be pursuing a line of thinking or, you know, certain behaviour that possibly isn't great they won't tell me what I'm doing wrong but they'll get me to think about why I'm doing it and Mm. I think sometimes we're scared to do that because we don't want other women to not like us Mm -hmm. we don't want it to be an unpopular thing but sometimes helping someone else to figure out the answer for themselves I've found in the last couple of years has been a very powerful thing yeah so the question that I ask everybody on this podcast (laughs) the final question is if you could pick one person or a story that you think of as your mental health champion, usually it's just champion in general, but because it's both of you, um, I'm going to ask a mental health champion, who would it be? Let's go with you first, Joe. I mean, I have to say that it is my husband. And, and Paula, I thank you so much for sharing how it felt for you being on that side of the fence when you were when you and Rob were going through what you went through and every single day my husband does this amazing thing if I am struggling uh, it isn't about fixing it's about walking this difficult path and sometimes it is difficult with you with me so he is always going to be my biggest hero for that what's his name Simon oh well we salute you Simon (laughs) for walking the path how amazing uh Paula My mental health champion is my best friend, Mal. You know, she doesn't work in medicine. She works in finance. But she has always been at the other end of the line of the phone. I know she is the busiest person in her career that I have in my life. 
but she will never not pick up the phone to me or respond to a message. And when I was having a really bad time of it, she was, I think, on holiday in Paris. I was just going through a really bad time of anxiety and nothing I was doing was really helping. And I just remember calling her on the phone outside King's Cross Station and I couldn't even really tell you what the conversation was about. It was such a blur. I just know that she just listened and she just soothed me and she made me feel better. And when I got off the phone to her, because I didn't think it was possible, when I called her, I just thought, no, you know, this isn't going to go away. I'm just going to always feel like this. And when I got off the phone... I was like, oh, my God, I feel so much better. <laughs> wow. And she and I just know she will do anything. She will hop in a cab. She will be there on the other end of the phone. And the feeling is a very, very much mutual. And I'm very lucky to have her. Well, how wonderful that you both have these champions in your life. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for sharing as open and honestly as you both have. For anyone struggling with their mental health, uh, one of the most important places to start is by finding someone to talk to. The Samaritans is a good place to start. You can visit their website at thesamaritans.org. Find out more about how NatWest supports female-led businesses and champions women's voices by searching NatWest Women in Business online. (laughs) 